0: Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together, so that they trembled one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, Whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him whom, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him, the Son of Man, will also confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Now, when they bring you to the synagogues and magistrates and authorities, do not worry about how or what you should answer or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And one from the crowd said to him, "Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me." But he said to him, "Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you?" And he said to them, "Take heed, and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, "The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully." And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who is these things which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barns, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God, if then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven how much more will he clothe you o you of little faith and do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink nor have an anxious mind for all these things the nations of the world seek after and your father knows that you need these things but seek first the kingdom of god and all these things shall be added to you do not fear little flock It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in heavens which does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. And let us pray. Our great God and heavenly Father, We are thankful for this word. It is a word that is good. It is a word that is true. It is a word that brings us away from all fear and anxiety and rather to the fear of the living God. And so how we pray that it might dwell richly in us and that you might enable me rightly to proclaim it and its truth and apply it and that these your people might receive it in faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We turn now to Luke chapter 12. The scene is set in in the first verse. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another. That's very interesting, isn't it? This previous chapter that we spent so long in, in in chapter 11, is just full of warnings. It's full of rebukes. Not just for the leaders. Yes, I mean, that's the focus. But for the entire generation. That's what he says. This entire generation generation. The Pharisees, the law experts, they took great offense at this, but it would seem that the people actually wanted to hear more. And as an aside, I think that it's still true today that people like straight talk, they appreciate straight talk, and they can probably endure more of it than what we sometimes think, if it is done in love. And Jesus, of course, was supremely loving, and so therefore people were willing to hear even these warnings, even these rebukes from his loving lips. Now, we have been considering all the terrible mistakes that the Pharisees and law experts make, but the thing that, underly, that was underlying all of it, not just the common thread, but really the common source of all of their mistakes, was the fact that they feared man rather than God. We know in Matthew 23, 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. That's what motivated them. Or Luke 22, 2, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, that is Jesus. Why? For they feared the people. That's their situation. That's what they lived in fear of, the people. They feared man. And that deadly choice that they made is so very clear by the text. The reason why they did not fear to do it, but were willing to kill God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason why they didn't fear to do that is because they did fear man. And their fear of man was so tremendous and so all-encompassing that they feared not even to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and to put him to death. This is the issue that we're taking up this morning. It is fear. Now, we could say that fear is categorically bad. It is absolutely wrong in every instance, but that's not quite the case. Now, fearing, fearing, fearing to offend, fearing to, to be on the wrong side of fallen, sinful men, that is bad because men are ignorant. They are capricious. They are vain. They are evil. And if you spend your life living in fear to offend such people, fallen sinners like that, Your life will be terrible. You can be certain that you'll fall into a pit along with him. But what if there were someone that was altogether righteous and holy, completely just, wonderfully merciful? And what if this one were also your rightful king? Would it not be a good thing to fear to offend him? Absolutely. And that's our situation. And that's what Jesus wants to make very clear here. You're designed to fear something, to fear someone. We just need to make the right choice as to who that's going to be. Now, we need to get this straight because every last decision that we ever make will depend upon the answer to the question. Whom should I fear today? Whom should I fear this hour, this very moment? Who is it going to be? Is it going to be men or is it going to be God? Now, I say men, by the way, but there's another kind of fear. There's a general anxiety about circumstances that we're sometimes fearful of, and that's not good either. And we live in fear of, what if this happens, and what if that happens? There's this consequence. I I know the Word of God says this. I know the Word of God says, seek first the kingdom of God. But I fear this event coming upon me like a train wreck. And therefore, I, I today, or at least this hour, I choose to do differently than what The Word of God has said. Unless we get this matter straight in our head, with utter perfect clarity, we will always make the wrong decisions in our lives. The question of this sermon is very simple Whom you should fear? And I mean that intentionally, it's not grammatically perfectly correct, but whom you should fear? Because Jesus is going to show us the one whom we should fear. And there are the three points. Not events, not man, but God alone. Whom you should fear? Not events, not man, God alone. Well, firstly, not events. Verse 6 are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Now, this is the illustration. You see that that sparrows were most likely the cheapest meat you could possibly get in the market. They were five. They They're being sold for five for two pence. That is very cheap. And their death, therefore, would seem to be of very little consequence. It's not something that God would be terribly concerned about. Probably something that happens outside of his conscious control. But Jesus said that we'd be wrong if we said that. That's not not true. He says not one of these sparrows that are sold five for two pence is forgotten before God. That is truly amazing. The parallel verse in Matthew, Matthew 10, 29, puts it this way. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will? We see how these things are put together. They're not forgotten, and therefore their their fate is not random. It is not outside of God's own conscious will, but rather is part of it. Apart from His will, not one of them falls to the ground, even though they are sold five for two copper coins. This is, of course, perfectly in concert with what Christ says later on in this chapter. As he is trying to explain why we should not worry. He says, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouses nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? You see that? Likewise, the ravens. God even takes care of the ravens. He makes sure that they have sufficient food. How much more? How much more value are we? And likewise, the lilies. It's not just birds. Okay, they're sentient beings. They're animals. They walk around. They fly. What about the grass? It says, Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So true. We consider then how much more that we are of value to us, to, to God himself. The very lilies, which in this time we have these bulb plants which sprout up and they are there for a while. And then the council comes with their mowers and they're mowed down. They're not in the greatest scheme, the grand scheme, something of great value. Yet we know that the Lord and his goodness so grants them to be clothed with such beauty and glory for their time he's appointed for them. Well, we are much, much, much greater value than such things. We have to consider just how much worth that we would be that Christ would send his only son to die for us. He didn't do that for the lilies. He didn't do that for the ravens. He didn't do that for the sparrows, did he? Why then should we be so concerned about events which he even takes care of for these things when he cares so much, manifestly so much more for us? And Jesus goes on to say in verse 7, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, he's going from the the lesser to the greater, right? But he's saying, look, the idea that God does not lose track of even the sparrows, none of them fall to the ground apart from the determined will of God, And now Jesus says, God does not lose track of your hairs. And and they're all numbered. They're all accounted for. You know, what sort of things do we account for? What sort of things do we inventory? In the Marine Corps, for instance, those weapons. You dare not lose a weapon. They're all perfectly inventoried. And and that's something that happens in the morning and in in the evening. Every last one of them has to be perfectly accounted for. I can tell you, I did not take inventory of the hairs on their heads. Uh, That was not something that was a matter of concern to me. But God says, I care more about you than you could possibly even know about you. Do you know how many hairs are on your head? I don't. I don't think many of us do. God says, I do. They're perfectly counted. I could tell you right now exactly how many. Do not think... Therefore, brothers and sisters, that God leaves you to the events of chance as if they were somehow apart from his sovereign determination. Those hairs which God knows, God alone knows, not one of them falls to the ground apart from his sovereign determination. Is something so terrible really going to come to us apart from his will? Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Many sparrows, indeed. How many sparrows could be accounted for a single human life when they are sold five for two pennies in the marketplace? Now, these disciples, they were tempted. They were tempted to fear that something would just happen to them, some impersonal fate, some chance. And God says, that doesn't even happen to the least of the bird population. They're not met with some horrible circumstance or event outside of God's control. That doesn't even happen to them. Let alone you. So please, do not live in fear of events. Every last event that ever comes our way, every circumstance, good or bad, is perfectly and personally and consciously brought about by the loving and living God. Therefore, we should not fear these events. Well, secondly, we're asking the question, whom we should fear? Certainly not man. Not man. Don't fear him. Going back to verse 1, in the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I say that very, I, I chose my words carefully. The way that we have it written in our Bibles is that the speech, the quote marks begin with beware. But rather, I think it's better translated that, it, or better indicated, uh, he began to say to his disciples. And in that direct speech is first. First. That's what he's trying to say. Let's get this straight, you disciples. First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. He is putting that of principal importance. And what what is he trying to say here? What is is this leaven of the Pharisees? Well, he doesn't leave us in any doubt. He says it is hypocrisy. Okay? So he's saying, you guys, you disciples, get this straight, Beware of this horrible malady, this cancer upon you, which is hypocrisy. Now, where does this hypocrisy come from? What is it like? Well, he says it's like leaven. He uses this illustration of leaven and you know that yeast is very small. It's the smallest ingredient that's in bread and yet it has this very noticeable disproportional effect. makes the whole thing to rise to much larger than its original volume. It works its way through the whole loaf And that's the thing he's pointing out. That this hypocrisy, this leaven is something that spreads. It's something that makes its influence known throughout a community. And he's saying, my disciples do not go down that road. This idea of hypocrisy, it works like leaven. And we wonder how there could be so many hypocrites. The answer is that this leaven had worked through the whole lump And this whole community of Pharisees, once one leader is is a hypocrite, then someone else is going to be a hypocrite, and pretty soon the whole bunch of them are living in total hypocrisy. And that's why he says, I don't want that to happen to you, my Christian disciples, my church. Don't let that leaven enter into this, my lump. Now, hypocrisy is pretending to be something, particularly in religious terms, that you aren't. Very simple. It's an, being an actor, that's what that word means. Hi, a, a hypocrite, just a word for someone who acted. Be, co- pretending to be something you're not, particularly in religious terms. Now, the, the remedy for that, and we'll get to the, the root of it, but the, the remedy for that, the antidote for that, is to realize that you're not fooling anyone, at least not for very long. You, you won't be as tempted, you see, to go on this acting, to, to be a hypocrite, if you realize that you're not really fooling anyone. And so there, Jesus makes this pronouncement in verse two, there is nothing covered that will not be revealed nor hidden that will not be known. Don't, don't kid yourself. You Pharisees are being hypocrites. You're acting all this wonderful way and you don't think that you're gonna be caught. You don't think that I know any different. And he says there is nothing that is hidden that will not be revealed. And there is nothing covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light and what you have spoken in the ear and the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetop. And we know that this has will certainly happen on the judgment day, that all the hidden things will be made known on that day. So soon enough, that day is coming. But even in this world, there is a way, you see, there is a, a sense in which our hidden things and the way in that which we act ends up becoming known anyhow. Well, we should be keeping that in mind. Lest we ever be tempted to be a hypocrite, we need to understand that all this will be revealed. Now, but where does this impulse towards hypocrisy, acting like something that you're not, where does it come from anyways? It comes from the fear of man, right? That's why we have to act. Well, the reason why people, every even uh, you know, a schoolchild will know, the reason why someone is acting like something they're not is because of the fear of man. That's the thing. I, he says, "I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more they can do." He gets this is the heart of the matter. He's dealing with hypocrisy, but the root issue, even behind that, is the fear of man. Don't don't be afraid of them. These Pharisees living their lives in fear of man. And everything that they ever do is governed by what other people are going to think. They even think they can fool God. Jesus says, please don't do that. And to make his point, Jesus does not remain simply at the level of approval and of relative social acceptance, which is where we crumble so often. But he goes right to the top, to the very top of it, which is in is matters of life and death, to the fact that somebody could just maybe put us to death. We know that our brothers and sisters around the world, this very often happens to them. It's indeed, we're thankful that we have relative peace in, in this land, and we pray it would continue. But this is the worst. This is what could happen, and we should, go. we should do that. We shouldn't just stay with the little thing. Let's go all the way. What is the absolute worst that these people could do to us? And the answer is they could kill us. And Jesus doesn't deny it. Now, by the way, he's just said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his father's will, so we can be absolutely certain if someone ever does kill us. It is not apart from his own sovereign determination. This is not outside of his will. He must have good purposes for it. And we should say, of course, even if we are killed, we are ushered into his presence immediately. So uh, it, it doesn't have the fear for us that it does for the unbeliever. But even if so, what then? Is that really then the thing that we should most fear in this world? And the answer is no. He says, after that, there's nothing more that they can do. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body And after that, have no more that they can do, because Jesus reminds us that is not the worst that can happen. The worst that can happen is in eternity. And brothers and sisters, there is absolutely nothing that any person, any man, any woman, any child can do to us in eternity. Do you believe that? What happens in eternity is utterly and completely outside of any person at all. There's, there's, they, they can do us neither harm nor good in eternity. And therefore, we should not fear man. Rather, and Jesus' point is that we should fear God. This is our third point fear God. He says, But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear Him. Now, let's just begin with I will show you whom you should fear. Now, I think that Jesus is dis- dismayed that the Pharisees should be so controlled controlled in the words that they speak, the actions that they do, their calculations in particular. They're always making these calculations, aren't they? What should we do? You see this. It's, it's given to us in the gospel, even as they're considering what they should do about Jesus. They are always making these calculations. If we do this, this will happen. But if we do that, that will happen. And all of that, all their calculations governed by the fear of man. Not the slightest thing what is right in the sight of God. Doesn't even enter into their calculations. Jesus is dismayed that they could be so mistaken, that they could be so wrong, that they should pretend, spend their lives pretending to be something that they're not, just so they can gain the approval of the fellow sinners around them. Now, Jesus doesn't say, don't fear. He doesn't say, there is no one to fear. There is no such thing as a gravitational force around which your planet should, should orbit. He actually says, You're just you've chosen the wrong one. And he says, no, let me tell you, let me set you straight here. Let me tell you the one that you should actually fear. And then he doesn't give his name. He says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to describe him, but he does not actually give his name. He simply describes him in terms of his authority. He simply gives in terms of his attributes. He says, fear him, whom after he is killed has power. He goes on to explain that power. Now the word for power is Authority. Because God has supreme authority. And what we are finding out, what this chapter is telling us is that God is the one with supreme authority in eternity. And he, and he alone has authority to decide our eternal destiny. And everything that we have or everything that we lack, any pain that we might have, any pleasure that we might have in eternity is utterly and completely in the hands of this one. Whom after he is killed has authority to cast us into hell. And brothers and sisters, beloved, we must never forget that it is about eternity because that is essentially pretty much all that matters. Now we say pretty much because there's a sense in which mathematically there's kind of as X approaches zero, right? There's infinity over on this side and there's a a span of time on this side. So it's maybe not completely zero, The things that happen in this world. But compared to eternity, they are as X approaches zero. And therefore, there is one that we should fear. We should fear the one having this authority to do with us as he will in eternity. The one who has the power to make that determination. Now, we very often get carried away in the level of, of apparent authority that people have in this world. And we know that the authority structures are, in fact, set in place by God, the rightful authority structures. And we forget that inasmuch as they can do anything apart from God's will, and they, they can't. Even Pilate, you know, Jesus says, you'd have no power at all unless it was given to, to you by my Heavenly Father. But the very worst they can do is hasten your already inevitable departure from this life. It's already inevitable that you'll leave this life, bring you into eternity. But God then has sole personal authority in, heaven, in, in eternity. And God alone makes his decision where we're to spend it. Therefore, we should fear him. Now, the obvious question that occurs to us is, is this really the right way to categorize our, our, our relationship with God? Should we really say it's a relationship of fear? And the answer is no, in, in absolute terms. Of course not. So it's a loving relationship. Couldn't possibly be out of pure fear or mere fear. We know that perfect love casts out fear. But notice in, in the context what it says in 1 John 4, 17, love has been perfected among us in this that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect fear, perfect love casts out fear. Now the issue actually is the day of judgment. That's precisely the issue here. And, and what he's saying is he's talking about assurance of salvation, and he's saying, if this love is perfected, if you have love for God, love for his people, you should have assurance of your salvation. You should not live in fear of the day of judgment. That kind of perfect love casts out fear. So we understand in the sense of what it's speaking of. Not in terms of uncertainty. Not in terms of anxiety. And unfortunately, that's so much of our fear of man. It's, based, it's an anxious sort of fear. We just don't know what they're going to do next. But we know what God is going to do. We know his promises. And therefore, the kind of fear that we have with God has nothing to do at all with anxiety or uncertainty. That's not the kind of fear we're talking about. What then? Well, basically, it's a respect for God's authority. That's the basis of Jesus' whole argument. God alone is the one with this kind of authority. Why are you guys spending your life in fear of these things that have no authority whatsoever? You should fear the one have right respect for the one who really does have true authority. And the question again, who looms large in our horizon, so largely that he controls our thinking? Whose opinion do we so respect that it determines what we are going to do? That's what I'm speaking of. That's the one we fear. That's the definition here. That's Jesus saying, these things that you're doing for men, basically is we dare not offend them. We dare not go against them. They have given their opinion, and we should respect that. He says, that thing that you're doing for them, I want you to do it for God. Pretty simple, right? That's the kind of fear that we're talking about. And by the way, minus the anxiety portion. Minus that one, because when you fear the living God, you know that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He'll never change. And so Hebrews twelve twenty eight says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence, And godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And we have respect for his holiness. We have respect for his purity. And we dare not transgress against him. And it is to the glory of God that that he alone is to be feared. We diminish him. We dishonor him when we fear man. He says, No, I want you to fear me. He says, If I am a father, then where is my fear? again, in the term of respect for his authority and greatness and holiness. Well, when we turn to, as we do now to application, we can flesh this a little bit out because the first and obvious application is to fear God. Again, much more could have been said under the third point, and I I could add much more than I am even in this application. But you could almost summarize the whole of scripture to say this is it's to teach people the fear of God. And when you summarize someone who's on the right track it is to say he fears God. He is a God-fearer. And that's not the Old Testament. It's all of scripture. Acts 9:31, then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edifying. And when when Luke under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wants to summarize that these churches are in good shape, what does he say? That that the culture loves them? No, he says they're walking in the fear of the Lord. That's what he says about them. They're walking in the fear of the Lord and, by the way, in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That's something you don't get when you fear man. There's no comfort there. Just anxiety. When you fear God, what you also get is the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Well, we should that word should be descriptive of us. Those walking in the fear of the Lord. We should be those who fear God. We should be God-fearing men. God-fearing women, God-fearing children. Now, what does it mean to fear God? I've mentioned a little bit about that, that. But let me just reiterate that there's an understanding that our God is not someone to be trifled with. You see, when you have a small God, a weak God, a God of false theology or liberalism, whatever it might be, this is a God that you're not overly worried about transgressing. It's like some tiny chihuahua Something like that, that the dog might bark and might say something to you, but you're not worried about it. He might be barking, but you don't mind transgressing or going against the dog's wishes. But what if it's an Alsatian? What if it's a Rottweiler, not on a lead? What sort of, what is your attitude then? You say, the dog doesn't want me to take his food, and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to transgress this dog's wishes in this regard. Now, brothers and sisters, I do not mean to reduce our, our, our God to such animals. I mean to say, if that's what we do for a dog, then surely we must do that for the living God. Surely we must fear to transgress his, his word. Surely if he says, don't do it. Who do we think we are to say, well, what does it matter? That's what the fear of God is. We don't let his word fall to the ground. We say he is too holy. He's too worthy. He is too, has too much power and authority for us to so lightly transgress his word. Part of it, by the way, is when he tells us, don't fear man, we, we dare not. You know what, let's make that our second application then. Don't fear man. Because that's a special particular application, isn't it? Those two things are absolutely mutually incompatible, right? These Pharisees, their great problem was they were fearing man and not God. And the, the two things can't coexist. And Jesus is saying, fear God and don't fear man, because that's, that's the great package deal that you get. If you fear God so completely and you, you dare not transgress against him, and you loom so largely in your horizon, and this huge gravitational force by which everything orbits around, there, there's nothing out there. Alright, if 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 God is your son, Pluto is not going to bring you out of orbit, is it? You're going to orbit around the sun. And Pluto and all the men of this world, they don't matter to us. They're not going to perturb us in the slightest. Don't fear man. We know that Proverbs twenty nine, twenty five warns us the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. The fear of man just isn't safe, by the way. It will bring you to destruction. It's uncomfortable. As I say, they're unpredictable. Lots of people try to live their lives in accordance with what they think other people want. And they change. They say, I thought you wanted this. I thought you wanted that. People are, are not like God, you see. It is a, a worthless, fruitless endeavor. But rather, we say in Hebrews 13:6, so we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Exactly. Jesus pointed exactly. What can man do to me? There's nothing that he... Now, ultimately, he can take our lives, but that's not much in the grand scheme. But we know that even that, and every last thing that is done, not even... No one can even raise their tongue against us apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. And therefore, we should not fear man. Thirdly, of course, don't fear events. Because I... The Lord wants to set you free from that. Please... These events just don't happen. These consequences that we so fear coming to us. I, I do not mean to say that we don't give right thought to things. Jesus, you know, we there is this principle that we reap what we sow. But the point is that our priority should be oriented in the right direction. The point is that our ambition should be set in the right direction. The point is that we never ever think to ourselves that something is going to overtake us that is apart from God's immediate control. Now, once we're clear about that, we say, look, anything that is going to happen to us in this life that is, uh, that is under God's complete control, that, that means that no matter what I do to engineer a situation whereby I'm foolproof and nothing can happen to me, I'm bombproof, we understand, no, no, God can undo that. And sometimes he does to humble us. And we should therefore understand What he asks of us is very simple, that we put him first, let everything else have its place underneath that, but he is the one who orients everything. And the events that come to us, which very often, by the way, the things that we fear so much are often things that don't actually happen, but those things are under the control of God, who is a good God, who happens to love us. And the same God who knows how to do good even to sparrows, the same God who knows how to feed even the birds of the air, he himself will undertake for his own beloved people. Don't fear man. Don't fear these events. But fear God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, if you are indeed our Father, where is your fear? Lord, we pray that you would realign our hearts, that you would change their orientation, that our fear would be of the living God, that your word, we would tremble at the word of the living God, that we would dare not to let any part of your word fall to the ground, but rather, Lord, that we would gladly receive it and that, Lord, you would loom so largely in a horizon that everything else disappears, and that the pull of men and the pull of events would not even be noticed. Lord, that we would walk in right fear, without anxiety at all, without, without that feeling of being left in the control of things that are evil or the things that are by chance. Lord, we pray that rather we would live in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the assurance of your love, the assurance, Lord, that you would do anything indeed for your beloved people. And so we pray, Lord, that this kind of love truly would cast out the wrong kind of fear and that the good kind of fear would cast out all fear of man. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.